showed up the answer. What's your favorite Christmas movie? White Christmas. Okay, I heard. What else? Christmas Story. Okay, what else? What? Love Actually? That's a Christmas movie? Well, it happens at Christmas. All right, there's an argument starting over there already. All right, what else? Favorite Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. What else? Ernest Saves Christmas? Wow. Not certainly by the critics, but it, it's fair enough. Okay, other favorite Christmas movies? The Grinch, the old one or the new one? Yeah, the, okay, classic. Okay, fair enough. What? The Christmas Carol? The Muppet Christmas Carol. All right, fair enough. What else? Home Alone. All right, again, somehow gets played at Christmas because it happened to happen at Christmas. And, all right, what else? National Lampoons. Yes, we watch that every year. Absolutely. The Polar Express. Well, this is a good bunch of Christmas movies. All right. Well, there you are. Uh, Dave, you have your assignment for all of December. You can watch all of those movies end to end, all right, while you recover uh, from your, your accent. I, I think my favorite Christmas movie is Miracle on 34th Street, uh, the, the original one, not the remakes that have, have been done subsequent to that. The 1947 classic, this is the story, right, where the department store Santa gets put on trial by the overeager lawyer to try and determine if he's really the real Santa Claus. And he, he proves his legitimacy uh, by doing that which supposedly only Santa could do. He does the miraculous. He makes things happen that in no way anybody else could make happen. And so therefore, that's how they know that he's Santa. So um, the, think of these, all of these movies that have been mentioned uh, and your favorite kind of made-for-TV Christmas movie special plot line. This really is something that is unique to Christmas movies. This idea that the impossible becomes possible and usually thanks to divine intervention or some of the miraculous. It's more than any other genre, more than any other time of year. The movies that, that we uh, partake of time has some form of the miraculous embedded into it. Christmas highlights this kind of possibility for us to the extent that we actually even have a word for this in our culture, don't we? We call it a Christmas miracle. We don't usually use that language surrounding other holidays. And so this season, we're actually going to be looking at the various miraculous elements surround what author C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle or the birth of Christ. And the amazing thing to me about this is that as you read the Bible, this time surrounding the birth of Jesus has more significant supernatural events associated with it than any other juncture at any other point of human history. The ordinary elements of first century Palestinian life, shepherds, stars, mangers, politics, marriage, relationships, pregnancy, all of these get infused or get overlaid with this sense of the miraculous and wonder. So extraordinary that it still inspires awe and wonder in us today. And so we're going to look at some of these different supernatural events that transpire. Next week, Pastor narrative in Matthew chapter 1. And in 
or about angels. What does the Bible actually say about angels? And what does it not say about angels? Then on the 11th, the kids are going to do the Christmas program, and they'll take the full morning, and they will talk to us about God's big story. And so this is a great to invite uh, friends, neighbors, and family to come and participate and observe. And then on December the 18th, we will look at the prophetic element of Jesus' life and his coming, particularly uh, Simeon and Anna in the temple in Luke's gospel, where God gives them a special and unique word uh, for Mary at that time. And we're going to be privileged to have with us on that Sunday, uh, Russ Rosine for special musical guest. And Russ is the guy who closes out the Santa Claus parade in downtown Vancouver uh, every year. And so if you're watching that on TV, watch for the last float with the most energy, and that's where you'll find Russ. And uh, you should have lots of fun, and he'll be here with us on the 18th. And then on Christmas Eve, we will have a special gathering on the Saturday night at 6 o'clock till 7, and we'll ask the question, why doesn't God just do, if God does miraculous stuff, why doesn't he just do it all the time? Wouldn't that help people believe that he exists? And so the message will be entitled, um, Message in the Star Keith. So that's a great invitational opportunity as well. And then uh, we will round out our Christmas season on, we won't have a gathering on Christmas Day, so that's a Sunday, so don't plan to show up here. And then the Sunday following that, we'll have a big gathering, overcompensate for it, and we'll have about uh, 19 churches that are going to be gathering together in the uh, gymnasiums uh, here at the event center. We'll be hosting a, a way to kick off the year right with a year of celebration and focused on the unity uh, in our city. So that's kind of the highlights for you of what's going to be transpiring uh, over the course of our Sunday mornings together. And all of this traces back the miraculous birth of one small child some uh, 2,000 years ago, and that night when God uh, chose to come in. Thanks, John. All right, fair enough. (laughs) Good call. All right, well, let's pray together as we look into uh, God's word this morning. God, we're grateful for the way uh, in which you work. We're grateful for the way in which you work in our lives. We're grateful for the way in which you work in our world. And so as we look this season and prepare our hearts yet again uh, to receive you, Father, and to engage with you, We pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to hear what it is that you have to say to us, particularly as it relates to the miraculous, God. We pray that those who need to receive a unique or miraculous engagement in their lives, Father, uh, would experience that from you this season. In your name we pray, amen. Well, this morning we are going to focus uh, on the... um, an element of the miraculous that we might not think about as we go through our day-to-day lives, and that is the miracles that happen really every single day around us. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 2, and I want you to pretend to do something very, very difficult. Uh, If you've hung around a church for any length of time, it's very difficult for us to pretend and not rush to the rest of the story. Pretend that you don't actually know the rest of of the story. You might actually physically have to take your hand and cover up 
from verse 8 and following in Luke chapter 2. But we're going to look just at verses 1 to 7 this morning. And as tempting as it is to read past verse 7, don't do it. Pretend that all we know about the birth of Jesus is what Luke tells us in Luke 2 verses 1 to 7. And tell me if you still think that it's miraculous. So I'll be reading from the New Living Translation in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And this was the first census that was taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. And he took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her first child, a son. And she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. The thing that struck me reading this text in preparation for our season was how absolutely unmiraculous those seven verses are. If that is all we knew about the story of Jesus coming to earth from heaven, there really isn't a lot in there that gives us any indicators of something miraculous transpiring. Because on the surface, that story, those seven verses, is actually fairly plain. There's not many miracles there. Or is there? And I want to suggest to you today that when God is involved, the miraculous often hides in plain sight. And the danger becomes... Not that we dismiss the handiwork of God because it's too miraculous or that there are excesses involved with it in some way or that it's so overt that we notice it. The danger actually becomes it's so subtle and it's so much evidenced behind the scenes that we miss it. Sometimes we dismiss the work of God in our lives because we chalk it up simply to the circumstances of our lives. So let's look at the circumstances of Luke chapter 1, or Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. The circumstances that the writer tells us of Jesus' birth. Well, we, we know that there's a census. So we say, well, what's that? It's just a census. I mean, we have a census every four years here in Canada. Who cares? It's just, it's just a census. They just need some information about how to run things and tax people more effectively. Or is it just a census? Now, a census today, when we think about it, it's a pretty, I mean, I will grant the statistically inclined among you that it's a complex undertaking to survey a nation, figure out all kinds of stuff. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's relatively easy with the technology that we have available to us today. You mail it all out. You send people around to make sure that everybody's got it. You ask them to fill it out online. They're going to do it. You know, you make it against the law not to do it, but then you don't punish people or throw them in jail if they don't. So, I mean, there's, there's ways that they get this information from us. So it's not actually that, you know, involved. It's a relatively simple matter. But think of how much work it would have been in the first century to take a census. 
You actually have to, this is across the whole Roman Empire, you are literally requiring the movement across vast distances of millions and millions of people. They all have to go back to the place where they were born so that they could take accurate records so that they could make more money in taxation. And the sheer logistics of taking a census would be just staggering to think about. It actually took probably the full might and focus of the Roman Empire to get this done. Which raises an interesting point for us to consider about what seems like just a census. Is that when did God decide, how did God decide when the right time to send Jesus into the world was? How did God know, other than the fact that God knows everything, how did God decide this is the time that my son will be born? Well, Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 tells us that God sent Jesus into the world in the fullness of time or at just the right time. God sent his son into the world. So you have to think about what was needing to be in place in history for the gospel, the message of Jesus, his birth, his death, his life, his resurrection, to spread throughout the first century world in the way that it did. You see, it had to have, uh, there had to have existed a couple of prerequisites. One would have been a broadly understood common language or common culture so therefore it could spread along those lines. There weren't all kinds of isolated individual cultures whereby you'd run into barriers all over the place. Uh, there also had to be an ability to travel relatively in safety and a level of education that allowed for ideas to spread. And in history, this had not transpired until the Roman Empire was in power across the whole specter of the world. And so when Galatians 4.4 tells us that at just the right time, God sent his son into the world, on the surface it's just a census. But theologically speaking, God has been at work orchestrating the annuals of history, orchestrating the rise and fall of governments and powers, so that at the exact right time, at the fullness of time, the person and message of Jesus would come into the world. And so we might think, well, it's just a census, but it's actually a very clear evidence of God's unfolding work in history that was hundreds and hundreds of years in the making. You might say, okay, well, whatever. You know, it's just a census. But uh, it's, maybe it's just a coincidence that then Joseph is from Bethlehem. Like maybe he, he could have been from anywhere that he would have had to go back to. Well, actually, it's not. The evidence of God's supernatural hand bringing the story of redemption of humankind to its full fruition. Because throughout the Old Testament, as you read it, there are all kinds of prophetic words that forecast very, very specific things about the birth of Messiah, how he will come into the world. If you think about the story of uh, the wise men and when they came and they were inquiring and wanted to know where is the one who's been born king of the Jews. They came to see Herod. Logically, he's in charge of that area, palace. You'd think a king's going to be born. Herod says, I don't know, but I do know where I can find out. So what does he do? He calls together the leading religious scholars of his day and says, we've had a king, a report of a king being born. Uh, we've had some people coming and checking this out. Does the scripture tell us anything where this king will be born? And they say, yes, 
Actually, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says this. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. The people of Israel will be abandoned till their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land, and he will stand to lead the flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, and he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. It's not just a coincidence that Joseph was of royal descent, and specifically that he was of the house and the line of David, who was from Bethlehem. And it's not a coincidence that Joseph did not live in Bethlehem at this time, but that the census then legally obligated him to return back there temporarily for the birth of Messiah. Beginning to get a picture of how God works all of these very complex variables together. And so you're likely surprised, not surprised rather, that Mary is not just Joseph's pregnant fiance. We might look at it, and again, in our culture today, uh, we would say, well, it's, you know, she's pregnant, they're, they're about to get married, you know, they'll, they'll get there eventually. But remember, the Old Testament was actually very, very specific about what ought to happen to people who had sexual relationships outside of or before marriage. In ancient society, and still in Jewish culture at Mary's day, they were to be put to death. They were to be stoned, in fact. And so the very fact that Mary survived, it, the text says that she was now very obviously pregnant. And so the very fact that she survived the very obvious and public nature of the shame which she would have been heaped on, and the societal stigma, stigma of being demonstrably pregnant without having gone through a public wedding ceremony, is in and of itself a miracle that Joseph decided to continue in this relationship is a miracle. That Mary wants to make an arduous journey through the desert and over a mountain range in her third trimester. Ladies, is that not a miracle? I mean, every element of this event has the fingerprints of the divine all over it. It just so happens to be a really busy night at the inn. I mean, this part to me is one of the really incredible, miraculous parts. That God would actually choose to restrain himself so as not to intervene, to just at least free up some comfortable lodging for the birth of his own son, to me is astounding. Was well, just a manger. Well, that the baby and that the mother would survive the unsterilized and austere conditions of birth in a cave or in a stable. I mean, every single part of this story is miraculous. It's just that the language of Luke chapter 2 doesn't hint at it. And so without reading the rest of the story, we can actually miss the things that God is working to bring together his purposes you see, with God, there really is no such thing as a coincidence. And I don't know about you, but in my own life, I've seen this to be true. Most often, you see this in retrospection when you look at elements of your life. Because at the time, sometimes they don't seem so miraculous and even so pleasant, in fact. 
uh, when I was three years old, our family moved to northern BC, and we ended up moving three doors down from a couple named Stan and Lorraine Pavlis. And Stan and Lorraine were a wonderful couple. Um, they got to know my parents. They, they invited them uh, to participate in a small group in their home. And my parents were not people of faith, and they said, well, listen, I don't know what this whole small group business is. And Stan and Lorraine said, well, we study the Bible. And my parents said, we don't want to study the Bible, but we really don't know a soul in this city. So could we come to your small group just to meet other people and kind of not participate in the whole Bible study thing? And Stan and Lorraine were very wise and gracious, and they said, absolutely, we would love to help you get to know people around here. And so Stan and Lorraine were very patient and were very consistent in the way in which they lived their lives. My parents came to their small group for a number of years. Eventually, my parents said, you know, Stan and Lorraine seem nice. Why don't we go to their church? So they invited them to come to church one Sunday morning, and uh, they came, started going for a little while. And over time, God began to work in their lives and in their hearts to the place where they made a profession of faith. And so the question that I have about that encounter is, was our move to Dawson Creek, specifically to 1421 to 115th Avenue, was that a coincidence that we moved in three doors up from Stan and Lorraine? No, it wasn't a coincidence. God is always at work orchestrating these things. And then I can remember at age 13, we moved again, this time to Ontario. And one of the things that, you know, when you move, you, you need to kind of get reacclimatized with all of your medical professionals. And we'd moved all the way across the country. And so we were trying to find out different people. We already had a few things. We knew a doctor there, so that was fine. We knew um, my second cousin was our dentist, so that was fine. But we didn't have a chiropractor. So we just asked somebody randomly, a friend that we were getting to know, hey, do you guys know a good chiropractor? So they said, yeah, yeah, here, go to this chiropractor. So off my parents went to this chiropractor. And one day, it just so happened that my sister went along with my mom. And the chiropractor was just watching her as she walked in and as she stood there. And he said, have you ever broken your leg? And she said, no, not. I've never had a cast. I've never broken a bone in my body. And he said, well, um, just come on over here. I just want to check this out. I'm not actually sure if, if that's true. Well, sure enough. Uh, as we did a little bit more explanation, it became apparent that my sister had broken her leg on a tobogganing accident back in Dawson Creek, and we didn't know about it. Severely, in fact, she'd shattered her growth plate, and so when he looked at her, he could tell right away that one leg was already about an inch longer than her other leg. And she was going into her teenage years, and he said, if you hit a growth spurt, this will, this will irreparably damage your legs for life. Well, he happened to actually be a specialist in exactly how all of this works. Turns out, what you do just in case you're wondering, is you shatter the good growth plate, you reset the bad growth plate, you accelerate it, let it catch up, and then you shatter them both so neither of your legs ever grow again. Sounds painful. I'm sure it was. Uh, but my sister actually now is able to walk just fine, doesn't have any ill effects of that as a result of his intervention, just casually in her life. Now, was it a coincidence that those friends recommended that chiropractor to it? us? Was it a coincidence that he was a specialist and could tell right away by looking at her? We would never have discovered that otherwise. It was God's work in my sister's life and in the life of our family. I love the way which Daryl Bach explains everyday miracles in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. And he says this, sometimes God's work goes on quietly in hidden locales. 
And so the best way to show our amazement is with the response of a grateful and faithful walk that has ample donations of praise. See, God's like a great music conductor. He's always orchestrating the events of our lives and history. He orchestrated the circumstances and events of Joseph's life and his lineage, the patience and protection of Mary and her family, the intricacies and timing of Roman taxation law, all perfectly crescendo with the most miraculous event in human history, the birth of his son Jesus. So what's the takeaway from Luke chapter 2 about the nature of everyday miracles? Well, one element is to encourage a more reflective introspection in our lives to look back and ask questions of your own story, to ask questions of your current situation. Questions like, what elements of my life or recent experience have I seen as coincidence but could very well be God at work? What elements of my life or recent experience have I seen as coincidence but could very well be the hand of God at work? Kevin and Dang experienced this just last night. They're at their office Christmas party, and uh, they're going through, and then Kevin said, you know, our, our, uh, our company's very generous with, with Christmas presents. I just happen to never get chosen for the big prizes. So, you know, I, I just go and whatever comes, comes, and it's a great time, and we do all of that. Well, goes through the whole night, and in their company, the way it works is if you get chosen, if your name is not called, that's a good thing because that means the big prizes are getting saved for the end. Well, they go through the whole night, and Kevin hasn't been called, and he thinks, well, I guess this is a good thing. Gets down to the very, very last one. Well, they receive it. What is it? It's a $2,000 travel voucher. And Kevin says to me this morning, you know what, that's just God at work. We were trying to think and pray and ask God, God, would you provide a way for us to head back to visit Dang's family at some way? And there it is. God just provided it right in that way, in the circumstances of, of their life. God is always at work. What elements of your life, though, in recent experience have you just seen as coincidence, but could very well be the hand of God moving in your life and experience? Maybe it's where you live or where you go to school. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says that God appointed the times and places where people should live. God knows your address. He did not put you in that neighborhood for no reason whatsoever. Could be your family of origin, what those experiences were, positive or negative. Could be the gifts and the passions and the talents that God has given you. Maybe it's things that God spared you from in your life. Maybe it's things that God has brought you through in your life. Maybe it's resources that God has entrusted to you. And you've never stopped to think about, I wonder if God orchestrated any of this. I can assure you that he did. That's the more reflective piece and the more responsive piece where we look ahead and say, God, what might you be doing, is the question of this week, God might actually desire to do something in your life and something miraculous in the mundane. But will you be watching 
and anticipating that he is at work? Or will you just continue going through the motions of your day-to-day experiences of your life and miss the hand of God written large all across the circumstances of your life? I'm sure if we went around the room, many of you would have a story to say and a story to share about, do you know what? I thought that this was just something normal, something mundane, but in retrospect, I see God's hand at work. Why not get proactive with that process and ask God, God, would you show me, help me watch, keep my eyes and my ears open to what it is that you're doing so that I will be obedient to you when you invite my participation. Because unless we pause to consider... Unless we keep our eyes wide open, we might just miss the miraculous things that are hidden in plain sight. We might overlook the everyday miracles that are woven into the ordinary facets of our life. And as our way of responding to God this morning, we're going to move into a time of communion or the Lord's Supper. And in many ways, this is a perfect illustration for us of God's work hidden in plain sight. After all, when you walk up to the communion table and look at it, it's just bread. There's a whole spectrum of belief as to what actually happens at the table. Some believe that nothing at all happens. Some believe that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ. And theologically, we would be right in the middle. We would believe that the bread functions much in the same way as miracles do. If you read through the New Testament, the language that's used is not often miracle, it's often sign. And the reason is simple. A sign points to something other than itself. And so it's just bread, but... It's a sign. It points to something, or more accurately, someone. When you approach the table and you see, you'll look and see, well, it's just grape juice. But at the same time, it's more significant than that. Listen as I read from our confession of faith. The Lord's Supper points to Christ, whose body was broken for us, whose blood was shed to assure salvation for believers and signifies and establishes the new covenant. Through the supper, the church identifies with the life of Christ given for the redemption of humanity and proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. The supper expresses the fellowship and unity of all believers with Christ, and it embodies the remembrance, celebration, and praise, strengthening believers for true discipleship and service. Yeah, it's just bread. Yeah, it's just grape juice. But it signifies when we gather together and partake of it something much more significant than that. And so here at Jericho Ridge, I'll remind you that the tables are open and that this is an active and voluntary participation for all those who know Jesus as the forgiver and the leader in their lives. And I'm going to ask the team to come. They'll lead us in some songs of reflection And you don't have to rush to the table when you feel that you're ready. You can move there and partake. You can do so right at the table, or you can come and bring it back to your seat and participate there. The prayer team's also available for you, and they'll be at the sides. And if there's something that 
is going on in your life that you'd like someone to stand with you and support you in, uh, they're there to support and pray with you in that way, in partnership with a trusted and wise friend. And so by coming to the table this morning, you're expressing something powerful that you too desire to participate in that unity, in that celebration and praise, that you too want to experience the indwelling and the strengthening work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. That sure sounds like more than just bread and juice to me. And so the team is going to lead us in a song that's maybe one of the most powerful expressions musically of these ideas. It's the hymn, O Sacred Head Now Wounded. And some of the language might feel to you a little bit ancient and might be a little bit inaccessible or hard to wrap your lips around because of its age. But the truth of these words gives voice to some of the most powerful expressions of the true miracle of Christmas, the redemption of all humankind. So as we move into this time, I invite you to take these moments in song and in reflection just to ask God those questions in your own life and to ask God if there's anything that would prevent you from coming to the table and participating and get that cleared up with him. Also, just invite you, if you have never made a decision or a declaration of the Lordship of God in your life, where you've said, you know what, I've never actually come to that place where I've acknowledged him as a forgiver and leader in my life, then just make your way over to the prayer teams and they'll walk you through that and answer some questions that you might have and pray with you. And we'd love to give you a Bible this morning as well. So the table is open and prayer stations are open as we reflect in song this morning on the work of Christ.